This is an AMI podcast. I'm Kelly McDonald. I'm Ramia Amadin, and this is Kelly and Ramia. Live from the Accessible Media Studios, this is Kelly and Ramya. Entertainment, lifestyle, and great conversation. It's AMI's on-air community, and everyone's invited. Hello, folks. Welcome to Kelly and Ramya. But right now, I'm flying solo. I think hosting with me was a little too much maybe for Kelly to handle. So he's, he's disappeared for the moment joking i think we've got a couple of uh, technical difficulties here but you know what it's going to be a really good show so thanks for tuning in let's get into some of the content that we're going to have on the show today what was the first sitcom on television greg david answers this question as we dive into a brief history lesson on the birth of the television sitcom We'll be joined by St. John community reporter Marisa Hersey Meisner, who tells us all about upcoming St. Mary's Band Christmas concerts. Plus, registered nurse Leslie DePoe stops by to talk about men's health and how we can normalize conversations about it. Uh, we've got a quick event note here from the London area calling all seniors. This wellness event designed by seniors with vision loss for seniors with sight loss in Ontario is supported by the Government of Canada through the New Horizons for Seniors program and is part of a community outreach service under the auspices of the CNIB Foundation. So if you're 55 years or over and having any difficulty with your vision, they'd like to invent you to this free uh, one-day information program. So it's Thursday, November 23rd, 2023, time 9.30 a.m. at the Elmwood Presbyterian Church, 111 Elmwood Avenue, East London, Ontario. And you're going to hear a panel of professionals speaking on the following subjects that can seniors, concern seniors. Fraud, nutrition, sleeping problems, exercise, and high and low technology. So please join us for the most interesting and informative day. Lunch and door prizes are going to be provided, RSVP by November 17th, 2023. Uh, and you're going to contact 1-800-800, sorry, 1-800-563-2642, extension 5144. Uh, and or you're going to email vera, V-E-R-A dot O-R-S-I-N-I at C-N-I-B dot C-A for all those details. Romia, thanks so much for joining Hello. to help out with the show. How's it going? Oh, my goodness. Grant, you are a superhero. And yeah, thanks for having me. I'm here until Kelly gets in, which hopefully is soon. Um, this sounds like a really great program, though, the one you just shouted out in London, Ontario, which obviously um, Kelly had plans of shouting out. So uh, many of these kind of things popping up now, wellness, fitness related, specifically catered for uh, with accessibility in mind for, you know, inclusive opportunities for the blind or low vision participants mm -hmm. or disabled participants in general. Pretty, pretty sick. You know, it. it it can be so isolating being a senior. It really can. And you can be so vulnerable. And that's, that, that's honestly uh, 
one of the greatest concerns for me. So I think having an, an outreach and informative event like this is really interesting, really critical too. So super glad exactly. that they're doing that. Exactly. Uh, and it's not just a round table. It's a, you know, professionally led conversation. Do you want to get mm-hmm. to our uh, other yeah, let's do item? So Ram- Ramya, a new U.S. study finds that the popular weight loss drug Wegovy reduced the risk of serious heart problems by 20% in certain patients. This is the first study to document that an obesity medication can not only shave off pounds, but can also prevent heart attack, stroke, or a heart-related death in people with heart disease. The research, paid for by Novo Nordisk, the maker of Wegovy and Ozempic, involved more than 17,000 patients in dozens of countries. It found 8% of those getting a placebo had a cardiac incident or stroke, and that dropped to 6.5% in those taking Wegovy, a 20% reduction. The findings could shift perceptions about obesity drugs being just for cosmetic weight loss And with this heart prevention component, it could put pressure on insurers to cover them. I'm Jackie Quinn. You know, if anything, there's so much like stigma about these weight loss drugs and people who take them or want them. And people are going to want them no matter what. And maybe in a weird way, if we can prove that they're beneficial otherwise, Ramya, maybe that'll reduce the stigma a little bit. Exactly. And I was going to say it's rare, or at least it feels rare anecdotally and just socially to talk about weight loss drugs with positive um, associations in other aspects of health, right? Like to to hear something like this really just felt like a shock to the system because I'm thinking we don't usually do this. We're usually saying like, oh, bad, stay away. And how could this be and also we take other drugs where the primary um conversation wasn't around weight loss or you know thinking of that as a health benefit or health concern mm-hmm. and then putting that as a secondary part of the discussion whereas now we're saying hey this weight loss drug look at all the other things that it has going on so yeah you're right a, a huge shift in just our perception exactly exactly and anything we can do to make that a little bit more positive Sounds like a good thing to me. Uh, great show com- coming up. Uh, coming up, a Fort Saskatchewan couple is celebrating a doubly unique birth of with their of their daughter. Producer, reporter Beth Deer. She's got the details coming up on our headline segment. Don't miss a minute. Kelly and Ramya will be right back. Welcome back to Kelly and Ramya. Right now, I'm trying to fill the shoes of Kelly, and they are big shoes to fill. (laughs) So I'm trying to do my best. Uh, As always, though, we are live from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern, and we are also available on the podcast if you happen to miss the show. I've got Ramya with me right now. And uh, Ramya, how's it going? Hey, well, it's going decently for me. Probably not as well for you, but you're doing well. You know, I find it so interesting how the the concept of just health, what, what we were talking about uh, before the break, is uh, so socially constructed, you know, and there are all these 
implications of different things that you want to do with your body, that you want to do with your health, that we view sometimes very negatively. Uh, so sometimes just knowing that some of those things can be beneficial in other facets of life, maybe a drug that you're taking helps with your cardiovascular health, uh, maybe can shift some of our socially constructed perspectives of health. Yeah, absolutely, Grant. I, I think that more of the discussions that we're having are feeling nuanced or, you know, there, there's a lot more gray area. Like even when you just think about the words, the language that we use, the portrayal of different health conditions or um, uh, shapes and body shapes and like just, you know, human experience, we've talked about a lot of these things being just having to change, us having to shift our um, perceptions or the way that we speak with each other socially about health mm. because a lot of this stuff, and it'll come up again later in the show when we talk to registered nurse Leslie Depot as well around men's health. Absolutely. It's going to be good. Uh, continuing to shake things up a little bit, we've got our headline segment right now, and joining us today is reporter, producer, Beth Deer. Hey, Beth. I can't hear Beth. Don't know if we've got. Um, I can hear you guys. Oh, there, there we go. go. Can hear you loud and clear. How's your day going? We might be having Beth. some inconsistencies with Beth. Um, okay. But in the meantime, Grant, mm -hmm. we do. Well, I have one of the things that Beth wanted to talk about. The first item on her list was mm -hmm. um, about a mom who from Fort Saskatchewan, or not just mom, but as a, a couple that was celebrating a deadly, unique birth of their daughter, which is kind of um, a, a, a scary way to describe this whole thing, in my opinion. <laughs> hey, you guys. So I am back. Oh. I can take over there the go. topic of that. Okay. Good Tell us. Tell awesome. us what went on with this so birth. Yeah, like why I thought this was a really great headline for me to bring to you guys was because this is actually something that happened literally like five blocks from my house last week. Oh and gosh. I had no idea about it until I <laughs> went and was looking for headlines to share with everyone. So this wife goes into labor at like 4 a.m. They live in Fort Saskatchewan, which is about half an hour outside of Edmonton. And they were planning on delivering their baby at the Royal Alex, which is literally four minutes from my house. That's where I gave birth to my daughter. And um, it was the craziest thing. Her parents came to look after the kid that they already had at home. They were rushing to the hospital. She was in so much pain. Her husband even oh. said in the article, like, he wasn't really taking her too seriously. Like, he thought that she was going to be okay and was just overreacting which a typical man <laughs> but what ended up happening was she was like you need to pull over right now and you need to call 911 so he did they called 911 and literally like seconds later their baby was born um in the car on the side of the road in not the greatest uh, neighborhood in Edmonton. Um, she said something like it wasn't the most gorgeous area, a gorgeous area or something <laughs> like that, in the article, which I thought was so funny because it really isn't. But oh my gosh. There was 
finally like um like the first responders came to help and there was like a dozen of them and the baby was absolutely fine but what also made it really unique was the fact that uh the baby was born in what's called an orb which is where they're born like in their amniotic fluid or their amniotic sac so the husband without any first responders there had to break the baby out of the amniotic sac um before obviously they could hear a cry and do all the things it's meant to do but oh my goodness so terrifying wow i that that husband i feel like can never say again oh this isn't a big deal just don't worry about it i I feel like i feel like he's permanently lost that ability to to use that line wow I, I would think so. Wow, what a what a dramatic story! But so it sounds like everything ended well then, dramatically. But they're they're yeah. one happy family now. Yeah, and they even it says in the article they even stopped at the place the baby was born on the way home so that they could take a picture, which I thought was Aww. really really funny. <laughs> it's wild Absolutely. because you hear a lot of stories, or not a lot, but you hear stories like this just unique birds people on uh, airplanes and just mid mm-hmm. anything um and the the shocking part is just knowing how I, I but i guess it's it it's real right like this is real life where you don't actually realize what it's going to feel like beth mm-hmm. like the actual moment that your water breaks or yeah um, when you feel that the contractions mean that the baby's actually coming or uh, you know if, especially if it's your first birth, but I guess it doesn't necessarily have to be. You don't know what the sensations actually mean. 100%. And it's like, it's such a crazy experience. Sorry to get like too TMI with you guys, but I am like a typical oversharer. When my wars <laughs> broke with Henley, I remember Cody kind of doing the same thing because I'd been told like, it's nothing like the movies. Like it doesn't come like gushing out. It's just a drip. And like some women think that they peed themselves. Yeah, but mine yeah, yeah. really was. Like it was something out of the movies. Like I like screamed at Patronus because he was laying next to the bed and I was like, Patronus move. And I like stood up and literally like, it was like a waterfall. Like I flooded our bedroom. It was insane. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and this with this poor lady, like, amazing. Yeah. And the thing with this one too is uh that detail that they don't know exact time of birth because it was somewhere between 5.30 and 5.40 mm-hmm. in the morning, or if that's what I read correctly, because it was just so chaotic <laughs> dashboard drama. That they couldn't, like, nobody could check time, right? It really wasn't the idea. Yeah. For so many I also reasons. thought it was really cool, too. Like, they, um, so, like, obviously, they still had to cut the umbilical cord. And they, I'm assuming that the first responders had, like, sterile scissors or whatever. But they obviously need to clamp it. And they used a twist tie to clamp it. Oh. And then they gifted um, the baby, like, a, this twist tie that said baby's first twist tie in a bottle, which I thought was really oh. sweet. <laughs> kind of sweet. I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's so crazy how that process that is like universally shared by by women mothers and babies is so incredibly delicate and fragile we kind of just take it for granted but Mm. like I imagine everybody 
your heart, your your soul is probably just like panicking, thinking. I honestly, how is this I gonna go? even imagine. I remember when I was in labor with Henley, I uh, I got really lucky. I you know I got everything I wanted for my birth which all I wanted was an epidural I just didn't want to feel the pain um and I was just like laying in bed chilling (laughs) um drinking my apple juice and like sirens went off in the labor ward and the nurse was like I'll be back in one second and I could hear her like the second she like went out the door she like sprinted and I guess some lady like walked in and just like her baby like fell out of her onto the floor in like the room but at least she made it to the assessment room unlike this poor lady i also laugh at the fact that in the article she's like and it was a new car (laughs) 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 is that right (laughs) let's let's be honest sorry Sorry, go ahead ahead. uh let's be honest that's probably the husband he's like oh crap this is my new car this is my what what is happening to this car yeah, you gotta verify where that quote was actually wrong. Um, <laughs> they did also put in the article, which I thought was kind of nice. They put like a few things to do if you find yourself in this situation. So they say stop in a safe place, call 911 and your midwife if you have one, stay calm, um, catch the baby, don't pull them out, um, mm. and keep the baby's cord intact rather than cutting it with something that isn't sterilized and follow instructions from whoever you have on the phone, which I kind of just wanted to share that because I thought like I would have yep. zero clue to do if I was in oh, that God, yeah. I mean, everybody packs, like most people will pack a bag, right? Like they, they I don't know what you mm-hmm. call it, um, but you know, the, the bag that you take with you, the hospital bag, the overnight bag, the, yeah. the stuff that you know when you're, uh, this time frame of delivery means I got to be prepared in these ways. But actually, not everybody talks about the situations where if you didn't make it to the hospital, what would you do? Or if you didn't make it to the birthing center? Um, and yeah. you know, do you have the knowledge of what to do if you absolutely had no intervention of medical or professional help to deliver, to handle? Uh, in this case, thank goodness, the the mm-hmm. results were mostly slash all positive, even with the quirky, you know, way that they had to cut the umbilical cord and the baby coming out with the sack. But God forbid, if you were in a situation where it wasn't looking good, um, then, you know, this would be horrifying. Yeah, no kidding. Like, oh my goodness. Anyway, that is like an absolute horror story. Obviously it turned out fantastic. Um but god i just can't even imagine uh let's move on to the next topic um one in ten uh torontonians now using food banks um because of the world and inflation um an annual report that was published tuesday by two food bank charities um say that the number of people relying on food banks in toronto has doubled this year which is just absolutely insane and so sad um annual another annual report published um Actually, sorry, it was the same report that was published saying that majority of the people who are now using the food bank are actually employed and are spending 100% of their income on housing, which is ridiculous. Um, Another kind of thing I'd like, or a little quote I took from the article um, was that 
we are adding 12,000 Torontonians to the registry of the food bank every single month. And the majority of those, uh, yeah, people who are employed, which is just so crazy. Um, do you guys have any thoughts on that? I mean, it's crazy. It's heart-wrenching. And Rami and I were talking a little bit about cost of living uh, yesterday. I know of someone in my neighborhood, and she's been very public about her story, where she could mm -hmm. actually afford, I think, about $1,100 a month for rent. And there's nothing she can rent there. She's homeless. And it's heart-wrenching like it's it's gut-wrenching to think that we're in 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 this kind of a world uh Ramya where you you just it's that rat race and you can't get out unless you're you're so wealthy mm -hmm. yeah Ramya, any exactly quick thoughts? um just no just wheel. sorry I said like it's just a hamster wheel like it's just a vicious circle exactly no, exactly is. Any any uh, thoughts, Ramya, really quick? Uh, no, just the, the same thing that I was going to say. It was very, uh, it's very um, prevalent that, you know, there's got to be some changes or at least a lot of changes, but, you know, you can take it back further and further. Like we have discussions about one topic or another, but you can take it back further to understand that these are, uh, they, they run deep, right? Like the, the actual causes or factors around the challenges. It's it, absolutely deep. It's deep. It's systematic. It's mm. it feels hopeless. But I hope somewhere behind the scenes, someone is working on whatever they're working on, bringing down the price of groceries, constructing yeah. new housing, uh, doing enhancing the infrastructure outside of the cities, doing whatever they need to do to resolve this situation. Beth, uh, really appreciate you coming on today. Super interesting topics. Thanks for letting me step in for you, Gron. It was a fantastic to be here. Fantastic. Coming up next, what was the first sitcom on television? Greg David answers this question as we dive into a brief history lesson on the birth of the television sitcom. Join us after the break. Stick around and learn something new. Kelly and Ramya return with more in a moment. Streaming, sorry, broadcasting on AMI-TV from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern. You can also check us out on the podcast. It's Kelly and Ramya with Grant and Ramya today. I always have to do that math in my head, Ramya, because it must be so weird to you. But on the West Coast here, it's from 11 to 1. So it's kind of mm, like a yeah. morning midday show. So I hear you and Kelly saying it all the time, but I still have to kind of check myself. I know, right? Like, that's the national part of this national broadcast, which is um, trying to keep track of, A, the time zones, because for me, that's always been a struggle. But then also to be like, and what does this show mean for someone listening later in the day or earlier in the day? And are we satisfying those people? Because, you know, sometimes we get into, like, gross conversations and you got to listen to that through dinner. <laughs> exactly, through my lunchtime. But the next one is not going to be super gross, so you can listen to it any time of day. We're going to talk television with Greg David, our communication specialist. I'm Greg David, and I love TV. Join me on Kelly and Ramya, where we talk about the biggest hits, misses, and trends in television and entertainment. 
Greg, you had a few things you wanted to bring up this time around, and we voted on sitcoms. So we're getting a brief history lesson on the birth of sitcoms today. Do you want to start at the very, very beginning? What does the word sitcom even mean, and what is it talking about? Yeah, I mean, when I first pitched this segment, I thought, oh, we'll be able to wrap everything up in just a few minutes. But it turns out that the history of the sitcom, there is just so much information to talk about. So, yeah, let's go back to the very beginning. So what does the word sitcom even mean? Uh, This is a shortening of the word situation comedy or situational comedy. And it is a genre of comedy centered on a fixed set of characters who mostly carry over from episode to episode. Yes, I did get that from Wikipedia, but I thought that that was, you know, the most obvious or, or the best way to describe it. And um, sitcoms are different from sketch comedy. Uh, sketch comedy, like Saturday Night Live, is a troupe that uses, you know, new characters, but also established characters in a bunch of sketches. And it's also very different from stand-up comedy, obviously, where a comedian tells jokes and stories to an audience. Mm-hmm. And the cool thing about it is that sitcoms actually started on radio, but of course, we know that they are on uh, mostly found on television right now and uh and you can have a live studio audience in front of uh in front of you know when a show was being filmed like you know two and a half men or or uh or or the big bang theory or it can be imitated and enhanced by the use of a laugh track which is uh you know you can always tell when there's a laugh track and it isn't a live studio audience can you there's been a lot of controversies around certain some of our favorite shows being accused of just using laugh tracks (laughs) Oh, I can. I mean, you know, way back in the in the 70s and 80s, you could definitely tell when there was a laugh track because usually it was put over a joke that wasn't funny. So you knew it was a laugh track (laughs) at that point, which then is also used as an insult when a show when people don't find a show funny. They're like, oh, God, so many laugh tracks and friends. Yeah. Rude. Okay. You know, I I find the concept of sitcoms on old time radio to be so interesting and i think that a lot of blind people find this a really accessible form of entertainment and what's really fascinating is it just the difficulty that i think people have today of describing really visual elements Mm. but when you listen to old time radio it was like idv like they just had this way bs at sound or conversation of just working it in yeah, you're absolutely right, Grant, and I'm I'm glad that you brought that up. Like when you think about the War of the Worlds, which is kind of the classic radio play that everybody talks about, when you listen to that, there is a lot of description happening because you're right. You've got to have that those visual cues given to you by the narrator or the cast of characters, augmented by the sound effects. But yeah, it was really fascinating to go back and listen to those old radio plays and say, yeah, like they had to describe the audience to the audience what was happening because it was radio. There was no screen showing us what was happening. Mm-hmm, exactly, and done in such such an elegant way where it was built right into the program. Uh, do we want to talk about the very first sitcom on television? What was it? Yeah, I thought I immediately assumed that it was going to be an American show, and it actually wasn't. <laughs> the first sitcom on television was on the BBC, and it was called Pinwright's Progress. It was a British television sitcom that aired on the BBC from 1946 to 1947, so just one season, and it was the world's first regular half-hour televised sitcom. The 10 episodes, they actually aired every two weeks. Uh, uh, So on BBC, there was uh, Pinwright's Progress, and then on every other week, there was another show called Kaleidoscope that was a variety show. And uh, Pinwright's Progress was broadcast live from BBC Studios at Alexandra Palace, 
And the the synopsis for the show is that Jay Pinwright is a proprietor of a small shop who interacts with his staff and customers. So really not I mean, the formula really hasn't changed a lot. It's still, you know, in most cases, just people interacting with other people. Uh, so, yeah, fascinating. Pinwright's progress. And you, if you do a Google search, you can find some images. But that's all that uh, that uh, is still sticking around from uh, from 1946 to 1947. So we have no idea if it was actually funny or not. But it led the way, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, how about the first ever television sitcom in North America? Yeah, so this was a show called Our Miss Brooks, and like Grant was saying before, it actually began as a radio broadcast on CBS from 1948 to 1957 before moving over to TV. And this one starred an actress named Eve Arden as a cynical high school teacher. And when the show was adapted to television from 1952 to 1956, it became one of TV's earliest hits. And in the U.S., it was uh, uh, director and producer William Asher. Uh, he's been credited with being the man who invented the sitcom because not only did he direct episodes of Our Miss Brooks, but then he moved on to like the next big, big hit on television, which was I Love Lucy in 1952. And he directed right. 110 out of, out of the 179 episodes of I Love Lucy. And uh, after that, he moved on to Bewitched, which starred his wife, Elizabeth Montgomery. And that was on the air in 1964. And he also directed over two dozen of the leading sitcoms at the time, with, which was uh, the ba the Patty Duke show and Gidget. So it all really started with Armis Brooks, but then really kicked into high gear when I Love Lucy hit the airwaves. I love that you talked about Armis Brooks. It's actually one of my favorite old time radio shows, and it's really? such a yeah, absolutely. I love their style of sort of like pun punny comedy but not overdone yep. i love that it was sort of like an innocent time and and it was quite a breakthrough show for for women too though because if you listen to it now it just sounds very sort of tame but but she really was a, a powerful character female lead uh greg uh let's talk a little bit more about I Love Lucy, which I've also yeah. listened to, and that's a really good show. And it opened mm -hmm. the door for a flood of sitcoms. What other sitcoms were broadcast in the 1950s? I mean, this this is this is like uh, you know, people when I say this these next bunch of shows, everyone's gonna say, Yeah, I remember that. So the Honeymooners originally aired from 1955 to 1956, and this was created uh by and starring Jackie Gleason, and it was based on a recurring comedy sketch uh that he did on his own variety show. And uh that followed the lives of a New York City bus driver named Ralph Cramden, who was played by Jackie Gleason, uh, his wife Alice, played by Audrey Meadows. Uh, Ralph's best friend, Ed Norton, who is uh, played by Art Carney, and Ed's wife, Trixie, who is portrayed by Joyce Randolph, as they got involved with various schemes in their day-to-day -day living. Then there was the Andy Griffith Show with Andy Griffith as Andy Taylor. Uh, he played a widowed sheriff of Maybury, North Carolina, which was a, a fictional community. And uh, his lifelong friend and deputy, Barney Fife, played by Don Knotts, was part of that show, as well as Andy's aunt and housekeeper, B. Taylor, played by Francis Bavier. And Andy's young son, Opie, played by a little Ron Howard. So that was another one that happened during the 50s, as well as the Dick Van Dyke show from 1960. Uh, we're getting into the 60s at this point, but there was the Dick Van Dyke show with uh, with Dick Van Dyke playing the character of uh, Rob Petrie, and, uh, and Mary Tyler Moore played his wife, Laura Petrie. And so, yeah, I mean, those are the shows that still kind of stick around today that people talk about as kind of the classics of television. 
Exactly. They've done really, really well. They're, uh, you know, often looked at as some of the most successful and beloved of all mm-hmm. times. Why is that, Greg? I mean, it, clearly they're not newer shows and sitcom has changed and shifted, not drastically, maybe, but definitely in the last uh, you know, few decades. Oh, sure. I mean, well, the first thing was that that wasn't, you know, television was so new. People were getting television sets in their homes. So people were switching over from radio to TV. There were only a handful of channels. So everybody was watching. And, you know, if you had a TV, you were watching one of these shows. All of the shows that I just mentioned were all on CBS. So that was one of the handful of channels like under five. I think there were only three networks at the time. So you were watching one of those three networks anyway. And it was a brand new thing, right? It's like getting the new mm-hmm. iPhone or getting the, you know, the latest, coolest laptop. Laptop. Everybody wanted to have it, so they got it, and then they were checking it out. So, uh, you know, that's the main reason. And they they created and established the formula that we still see today. Uh, you know, you stick with that formula. If it ain't broke, you don't fix it. So, uh, yeah, and they were all the first and, and groundbreaking at the time. And that has sure continued into the future. Do you want to talk a little bit about some of the uh, sitcoms that were successful in the 1970s? Yeah, absolutely. So I was born in 1971. So I saw saw a lot of these shows kind of in syndication. So you had the Mary Tyler Moore show and MASH were kicking into gear during this decade. Uh, Sanford and Son, which I loved, uh, starred comedian Red Fox as a junk dealer named Fred Sanford. Uh, He was also a widower and he and his son Lamar Uh, got into shenanigans every week. Great, great soundtrack for uh, for Sanford and Son. And then All in the Family, which is, you know, on some people's lists, it is the top television show of all time about a working class white American family living in Queens, New York. Carol O'Connor played the lead character, Archie Bunker. He was outspoken. He was narrow-minded. He was racist, uh, seemingly prejudiced against everyone who wasn't like him or his Whoa. idea of how people should be. And, uh, yeah, it was just, like I said, at the top of the list, everybody talks about how All in the Family was groundbreaking at the time as the top of the list as the best show of all time in some cases. Wow. Wow. Um it's interesting to hear this kind of a description of a show in 2023 yeah. and still yeah, hold it true as like the best or, you know, one of the <laughs> best. But it, it makes sense still because of um, what TV meant, what comedy meant and what sitcoms were, uh, you know, before what we know it as now and mm-hmm. like just the yeah, variety absolutely. we get now. Yeah. Yep. Uh, obviously, we've only pretty much scratched the surface of these groundbreaking shows. So where can people go to watch some of them, if any? Obviously, some of them are yeah. just Google images now. Yeah, no, I was surprised. <laughs> so the Dick Van Dyke show is available on CH Television out of Hamilton, as well as uh, some other shows that we haven't had a chance to talk about, like the Danny Thomas show, I Dream of Genie, and even getting into the 80s family ties. So if you go to CH Television out of Hamilton, you can check them out there. If you have access to the CTV app, the Dick Van Dyke show is there, as well as Bewitched and The Flying Nun. And if you have access to the Fast Channel, Pluto TV, which is a free ad-supported streaming TV service, you can uh, watch all the episodes of I Love Lucy and the Andy Griffith Show. So the shows are out there. You can find them on those different platforms. Excellent. Those are some good resources. I, I didn't actually realize that some of those old shows are still out there. There's a lot of old-time radio out there, but television is a little harder to find, it seems, sometimes. So that's really good to know that yeah, those apps I'd and be services curious. are available. Exactly. And I'd be curious for people who um, 
haven't watched any of these shows to mm-hmm. you know only have like the perspective of what sitcom is now or in the last yeah. decade or so and then go back and watch some of this content to see <laughs> what people's reactions would be like mm-hmm. yeah absolutely go back and watch an old episode of the dick van dyke show and then compare that to the big bang theory or or <laughs> friends or something like that and and say that you know even though the stories may have changed a little bit the whole idea behind it hasn't changed at all it's true it's true. Like you said, formulaic, right? It feels yep. like sitcoms are the same on paper, um, but just curious about the nuances. Greg, thank you so much. Thanks that so much for having me. Have a great day. Thanks. Greg David, he's helping put a lot of that prime time recording stuff together for Kelly and Remia. That's happening on November 27th as well. So he's very busy behind the scenes, but always joins us every other week to talk television. Up next on The Buzz with Bill could be a TV show just for the buzz, 24-7 probably. Bill Shackleton tells us how lack of affordable housing in a Los Angeles neighborhood has inspired activism and art. Stay with us. Keep it here for more of Kelly and Ramya on AMI-tv. Welcome back to Kelly and Ramya. Hope you are having a fantastic week so far. Shaking things up again with Ramya and I hosting today. Kelly is having some technical problems, but no worries. He will be back on the show later this week. Ramya, how's it going? And, (laughs) yes, and on Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays, no matter who's uh, shaking things up on the hosting end, we you have the reliable Bill Shackleton joining us for the buzz. This is how we wrap up that first hour of the show. And um, Billy, so glad you're here. We were thinking of starting a, was it really a sitcom <laughs> grant or just any kind of TV show? Like the Buzz 24-7. Yeah, Buzz 24-7 channel. Hey, it sounds great. <laughs> yeah? You down or are you just going to have AI relief once in a while? Oh, I'm I'm on. I don't want AI. I'll do it. <laughs> oh, okay. There you go. See, some things are going to be authentically non-AI forever. Billy, where do you want to start? Housing crisis. Yeah, housing crisis. Um, lack of affordable housing in Los Angeles, Venice Beach, um, neighborhood. Home inspires activism and art. So basically, as as more and more of her friends found themselves priced out of the rental market, um, Judy Bramfman began photographing the dozens of houses, bungalows, and apartments that were basically priced out of them, or people couldn't afford them. So basically, what began is a one-person, um, you could say, form of activism um, has now blown into a full-fledged exhibition. The problem in Los Angeles is um, basically, according to this, um, 80% of, of people in L.A. spend half of their money or their income on rent and housing and, and or, you know, or mortgages or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's, be, be, yeah, it's become a real problem. And um, they are, basically what's happening is that a lot of these rental units um, are being sold and, you know, renovated and then, uh, you know, to, and, and they're getting two or three times the market price. Um, part of this problem 
is the Ellis Act, which was introduced in 1985, which basically gave landlords a right to evict um, tenants. And then a lot of these buildings are, are, are units are being sold to corporations and nobody can afford them. Um, so this exhibition um, is, is um, features block after block of units that have been um, some, you know, taken over by, and, and, and the only people that can afford these uh, rents are, you know, they're very rich. And it's a real problem because nobody can afford them or very few can afford the rental, you know? So there's a lot of, that's why there's so what, there's a lot of homeless down there and, you know, it's, it's a real issue. Well, it is, it's, yeah. it's again, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say it's, um, you know, if you're spending more than 80% of your income or half your income, you know, it doesn't leave you with much left, right? That's on a good Absolutely. day. Absolutely. Yeah. On a good day. It's it's yeah. terrible because in Vancouver, we have this problem of like oh, really? eviction where essentially, essentially people will just evict somebody, maybe do a minor, you know, repair on something, a minor little, I don't know, paint job, whatever. And it's like, great, this qualifies as, as an eviction, eviction because I need to renovate the place. And then they can sell, uh, rent it out to someone for a lot higher. Plus, as you said, it seems to be a, a thing in all these rezoning projects where, like, yes, yeah. it's great that we're building affordable, well, not even affordable housing rentals, but who does it benefit in the end of the day? Not really us. It's more the big corporations. Yeah, you wonder why. I mean, even in this country, why the government doesn't do something about about that? Or, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it seems to me it's ridiculous. And I've heard of this in Vancouver, too, that it's just... The pricing market, the housing market is just out of sight. It is. Yeah, but it's, yeah. You know, the the question of like, how do we help or how do we take a stance? I really appreciate when people can do this in very specific ways. And we don't all have, I don't know, the, the notion or maybe the capacity to do what this person has done. But if you think about how much of an enormous impact this work is, this is having just on our understanding of these neighborhoods, of the actual, uh, you know, insanity of it all, she's doing it just photo by photo, you know, yeah. building yeah. the picture as it goes. It's not a protest even necessarily, yeah. right? It's just a depiction of what's going on. And she's doing it in such a way through art, like through something that just started yeah. because oh, of a, yeah. a personal connection to a friend who was going through something and that empathy and that that devastation brought on this project and it's expanding and it's reaching more ears and more eyes. Uh, like, honestly, guys, like something like this as an action can create a huge ripple effect and it started from something so small. Well, one of the good things, I mean, uh, I can if I can say that is it's getting a lot of attention because Venice Beach is huge in tourism and it's, it's famous for mm. the boardwalk. And there's a lot of people that come there, which is good yeah. because it's not, it's not just local residents seeing this exhibition. It's people from all over the U.S. And I think that has more of an impact when more people other than local people in the city 
look at that thing and and a tourist will come in and say they have that kind of a problem over there exactly I mean, and, and we don't get to experience it because we're yeah, just that's tourists right. yeah that's it's, right it's peaceful it's a peaceful wake up call basically yes. you can complain about it there's no violent there's no disruption to infrastructure oh, no. or whatever it's just literally like hey guys let's just wake up a little bit take a look at yeah. what's happening in your community yeah exactly yeah. and and you can really dig deep or like deep dive into this you know if if it's uh somebody um who what is, it, is she calling it like a collage like somebody who yeah. ends up checking out this map and these series of photos um, mm-hmm. can really dig into and imagine if that somebody is someone who has the power to make some kind of a difference yeah, or to add on yeah, to the difference. That's right. Yeah. right. Like, yeah, we don't know where it's going to hit and how it's going to hit. No. And then maybe somebody has the same problem. Maybe there's someone from Vancouver down there. Who knows? <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> yeah, start that. Cool, Billy. We'll, we'll yeah. see where it goes. Where else do you yeah, want to go? We'll see. Well, let's do this one. Man receives a first eye transplant and a new face. It's Ooh. a step toward one day restoring sight. It's kind of interesting. A man um, got a face transplant in um, New York. Well, in at the University, I believe, of New York. And he basically was involved in an accident where he was working with high-voltage wires and he was electrocuted and burned. So basically, wow. he has now got a first, a, new, a face, uh, and a new eye, not and a new eye. Now, you guys know that there's all they've been able to transplant corneas for years, but what they've done here is they've transplanted the whole eye, the whole eye, the eyeball, and the blood vessels. And the the optic nerve, which is the most important thing, and so far it's working. Um, y- you can imagine how many vision impaired people, including myself, have had pro- they were blind because the 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 optic nerve has been damaged in the incubator. Those of us who are premature, and um, this is this could be a real world beater if they can if they can get the optic nerve to grow, the problem is they don't know whether they can get it to grow. Um, but I kind of, I mean, this could be something quite something. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's exactly uh, essentially why I don't have vision as well as my uh, essentially my retina slash optic nerve wasn't fully developed. So I, right. I would be curious to, to look at something like this. I wonder though, I just wonder the physical, obviously the chemistry, number one, but yeah. also like, I wonder what effect that would have on someone who never had like those avenues in the brain developed. Like I don't have a concept even of what sight is. I wonder yeah. what would happen if you just sort of flooded your brain all of a sudden with vision and you maybe you couldn't just switch it off like you got it you got it i wonder what that would be like yeah i wonder and and some people might just say well i wonder the way it was it's too it would be such an impact on a person you'd have to be retrained i mean how to you you know how Mm -hmm. to your spatial perception everything would have to be yes you'd be trained yeah, you hear similarly with cochlear implants for um, people who the are deaf, deaf yeah, or hard of hearing, yeah. right? Yeah, right. where like 
hearing through cochlear. It's not like this miraculous, oh my God, now I can hear again. There's no mm. such thing. Like if you're oh, no. losing hearing and then a new system or a synthetic system of hearing is brought back into your awareness you got to learn how to use that it's not the same and honestly like i've gone through clinical trials where i've gained um some peripheral vision that i didn't have before and it's weird like just to put it in a nutshell it's super weird to suddenly see something that i didn't see before or on good days and bad days how that piece of vision reacts uh to, to different lighting and it's you know sometimes very uncomfortable and other times you're like oh i kind of wish i didn't have this i don't know what to do oh, with yeah. it but with this particular example, though, Billy, um, we are still very much talking primarily, not with the science part of it, but uh, with the um, constructing part of it, aesthetics, yeah. right? Like cosmetic yeah. solution to uh, the, I guess, the accident and the things that this person went through and having an eye transplant for that. Yeah. Um, the article concentrated on the eye, but you're right. It must have been very complicated for the face i mean i obviously he, he, he was badly burnt yep um exactly. by the you know being shocked or being electrocuted exactly it's, so you know it, the one eye was completely gone yeah Sorry, that's right it's it's one of those examples where again and i think it's not really talked about that often but people with facial difference burns scarring whatever face so much stigma and fear from or, or not fear but you know stigma and, and prejudice in society where uh you know if you think about halloween most people just oh, yeah. draw whatever scars on their face whatever and cool i'm dressed up now and it's so interesting to kind of dismantle that and re-examine like why is our society set up that way yeah, yeah exactly where we focus as much about cosmetic and aesthetic as we need to with the other parts of this like this eye is a really great example because yeah. in the article the quote was like it's looking healthy but we don't know what that means mm. right because yeah, we don't we know, don't know what, yeah. <laughs> the actual mechanics of the working eye are either not concentrated on or are not necessarily looked at uh, as the primary issue but instead we're saying okay but at least he's got the look of an eye back. Yeah. Um, I don't think really we have time cool. to go into your last article. Oh, we really? about the NFL. Um, we can save that or run it another day. I don't know. How, are you guys interested in sports? But we can put that off. <laughs> um, yeah. Of course we are. Yeah. I don't know where you. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Rummy and okay. I are the biggest <laughs> sports fan. We pretend <laughs> on air, but off air, yeah. we just can't shut up about sports. We can't. Yeah, Quidditch. <laughs> Quidditch is my favorite yeah. sport. <laughs> Quidditch. Thanks, Billy. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Oh, man. Bill Shackleton joining oh, us God. Wednesdays, Thursdays, Fridays, not only to share articles, but to test our um, authenticity about loving sports. <laughs> it's one of my favorite segments. Honestly, it really is. Coming up in the next hour, we listened to an interview you guys did from the Balanced Community Info Fair featuring Andra Strzewski with the Strzewski Prosthetic Eye. Plus, registered nurse Leslie DePoe stops by to talk all about men's health and how we can normalize conversations about it. But up next, we're joined by St. John community reporter Marisa Hersey-Meisner, who tells us all about upcoming St. Mary's Band Christmas concerts. Don't move. Keep it here for more of Kelly and Ramya on AMI-tv.
back to Kelly and Ramya with Grant and Ramya today, shaking it up a little bit that some things remain the same. We are still on AMI-TV. We are still on the podcast. If you miss any part of the show, thank you so much for tuning in. It's now time to welcome in our community reporter from St. John, Marisa Hersey-Meisner. Hi, Marisa. Welcome to the show. Hi, Grant and Ramya. How are you doing today? Doing well. We are doing okay, I think. How about yourself? I'm doing very well, thank you. It's that Uh, festive season and uh, we're starting to ramp up for Christmas and so forth. So I thought I'd bring some Christmas cheer to the broadcast. Well, it is that festive season. It really is. And I love that it's already kind of starting a little early here i'm i'm glad that we're uh i've already heard christmas music uh i am i am in the spirit all right first things first you're going to talk about the saint mary's band christmas concerts before we get into that though we do have some audio from the the event It just, it That's honestly fun. gives me that sort of warm and fuzzy holiday feel feeling. Yep. Tell us about it. Exactly. Well, actually, uh, that actually uh, was a march, but uh, they will <laughs> actually be doing <laughs> um, all Christmas uh, music for these concerts. Um, the first one will be November 30th at the Church of the Good Shepherd. And then there's four slated for St. John. Uh, the next one's at Calvary Temple and Tabernacle Baptist Church and St. Mary's and St. Bartholomew's Church as well. We'll have uh, the uh, excitement of uh, St. Mary's Band. Now, St. Mary's Band is um, a a concert band, uh, Brass and Reed, that has been basically founded uh, since 1903. And in 1917, actually, uh, about two-thirds of the band members had gone to overseas to uh, fight in World War One, And actually, three members had passed away during uh, the war. And then when they came back, they had uh, started back up and they have been going um, ever since. And and the uh, band is a great contribution to uh, the city. And, and a lot of uh, city members or residents actually really love St. Mary's Band. So we're excited that uh, they're having four concerts this year. And uh, so if you can't make it to the first one, uh, you have uh, the opportunity to uh, go to the other ones. It reminds me of uh, my like concert band in in school where we get to put together and play some uh, holiday music. I'm guessing that's why just the mere sound of uh, a concert band reminds me of the holiday season, if it even if it's not actually a holiday song. But that's that's fantastic. Exactly. Uh, I think. Mm-hmm. It, I think we actually. Sorry, Ramya, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say it's a. It sounds like a pretty. Uh, it, you know, with different cities, I guess it's cool that you 
told us kind of the history of um, mm-hmm. the band, but also for different cities, you know, there's the Santa Claus Parade in Toronto that everybody looks forward to, or just like looking at uh, going downtown and looking at the different shop windows and things like that. Would you say this is a pretty big staple, Marisa? It is, and actually, they uh, they they St. Mary's Band a lot of times plays mm-hmm. in parades for Canada Day. Uh, they they have played in the Santa Claus Parade previously, mm-hmm. so yes, it is, and uh, they are well known here in New Brunswick. So it's um, it's really exciting. I. I sometimes think I should pick up my flute again and start playing and join the band. But uh, anyway, actually, there was uh, a um, a lady that was legally blind that had played with the band for at least two or three years before she had passed away. And uh, she was wondering, how am I going to see the conductor? Because she was going to play in the percussion, which is way back in the back. And so anyway, they had made arrangements. So she was able to participate in that. And uh, she loved it. Oh, that's so cool. I I actually played the drums in uh, the, the bands way back in high school as well. That was uh, definitely always a challenge to figuring out. I, you know, essentially I set the the rhythm for the band. So, uh, yeah. oh, that's funny. So is this a meaning, like really meaningful part of the holiday season for you is uh, checking out uh, some good, good music? It is. It is. Yeah. Yes. And uh, I, Usually I'll attend that, and then there are some actual tea and quilt and flea markets and that sort of thing for Christmas uh, crafts and things. And uh, so, yeah, usually all those uh, things that uh, bring joy and your spirits up for Christmas. Of course. Yeah, very festive. Yeah, I think we have one more audio clip, maybe if we want to roll that now. Fantastic. I'm, I'm going to have to check out some concerts this year for, for sure. Mm. For sure. Mm-hmm. Really Very important part of this. Very different sounds, too. I'll say. Second. Marisa, I uh, t- let's talk about... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I can tell you that they, they actually, a couple years ago, or just before COVID, they had played this very intricate... Uh, uh, and very difficult piece. And I remember the, especially the flutes and the clarinets, they, they had several notes that they had to play like, um, and very quick and, and everything. And it was so beautifully, like they did such a great job. And so the musical talent uh, within the band is just excellent. So, yeah, I'm on to my next topic which is exactly. uh, tis the season for giving and uh just wanted to talk about uh you know this this is a giving season and giving tuesday's coming right up on november 28th and there's lots of organizations that could use um you know donations and because there's such a need for um me- there's many needs um 
And so just wanted to point out a few for Giving Tuesday regarding, you know, the site loss community uh, specifically, and that is um, guide dog schools such as CNIB Guide Dogs, Mira Foundation, uh, Guide Dogs Users for Canada, um, and CNIB, of course, CCB. Uh, and then, uh, and I, I also should point out that St. Mary's Band is a charitable organization as well. And then yep. um, the other thing that, uh, you know, there's several others that you can give for Giving Tuesday. But uh, I'll move on to uh, the annual Empty Stocking Fund. And this actually is an event or was an annual event for some time and a number of years. And recently, about in 2022, the sponsor had um, had walked away because they had sold the business and and uh, the new owner didn't want to participate. So anyway, uh, we were we were concerned that this uh, this event wasn't going to happen again. But this year, the Joshua Group, which is a uh, an organization that supports children in St. John, is actually going to help and sponsor this event. So that's great. Um, and then the other uh, thing that I wanted to talk about is Harbor Lights. Harbor Lights um, is a campaign here in St. John, New Brunswick, that basically helps 16 food banks throughout southwestern uh, New Brunswick. And so, and the needs are so great here, especially in this area, high poverty uh, levels and, and a lot of children going without. So um, these are uh, a few uh, giving opportunities that, uh, and if you're interested, um, there is some information that I shared and um, you can, find their website for Harbor Lights and so forth. You know, we were talking about this with Beth uh, earlier, and it, we, we've thought of it as sort of an us versus them thing, but so many people are using the food banks and have that need. So many people that uh, it's, it's super important. Uh, let's move on, talk about men of the deeps. And uh, we have some audio from this as well, if we want to roll that. Men on rakes, they climb on board, traveling under ocean floors. They sweat and swear till the work is done. It's the miner and the miner's son. Men Marisa, rakes, Marisa yes. I'm just going to let you lead here. Tell us all about this. Uh, the Bit of the Deep is a um, choir that had um, that are basically um, retired or minors uh, from Cape Breton Island. And uh, on November 11th, we went to a uh, Remembrance Day tribute to um, honor the veterans um, that they had put on. And we absolutely loved it between the singing and the storytelling. I mean, Kate Bretoners are the best for storytelling. And so anyway, 
uh, just wanted to let um, all those in Ontario know that uh, the Men of the Deeps are coming to Ontario to several places such as Ottawa, Guelph, Burlington, um, and, and many more. And so I would advise you to check it out and, and have an opportunity to go buy your tickets and, and, and look them up because uh, we really enjoyed ourselves. And my husband said, I think, I thought you were going to laugh your head off. Oh, uh, that's fantastic. So many amazing events ha uh, happening around this time of year. And we really appreciate you sharing them with us, Marisa. You are very welcome. I hope you have a great day. You as well. Thanks for coming on the show. Okay, thank that you. Was, that was our community reporter from St. John, Marisa Hersey Meissner. Coming up next, registered nurse Leslie DePoe. She stops by to talk about men's health and how we can normalize those conversations about it. Stay with us. Don't go away. There's more great conversation with Kelly and Ramya right around the corner. Hello, welcome back to Kelly and Ramya. Ramya Amufen and myself hosting it today. Thank you so much for joining us. We, uh, every month, like to check in with our registered nurse, Leslie DePoe, and we're getting her in November now. So let's see what she's got planned. I'm Leslie DePoe, registered nurse, and there's nothing I love more than helping folks learn about their own health so they can be a better advocate for themselves and those around them. Join me for your health check-in where we chat all things health and wellness and even a little bit of science from time to time. Leslie, of course we know what's in store when you join us in November. We love revisiting this topic and uh, all the different parts of it when you join us around this time because Halloween's over, Christmas decorations are starting to appear everywhere, and with that, the mustaches because it's Movember. It, it definitely is, and uh, a, truly a testament to a well-executed media campaign. Maybe we should do an entire segment on that, uh, because, because they have done a very nice job with November, um, and it is a subject close to our hearts. We all know that the 11th month of the year, uh, also known as Movember, so we're going to talk mustaches, we're going to talk mental health, and oh, so much more. So let's dive in. Yeah, let's do that. So for... Uh, we know that we mark our calendars as mustaches in November, in November, but for anybody doesn't know, tell us what the mustaches mean and why we should pay attention around this time. For sure. So the Movember movement was actually started by a couple of friends in Australia who were inspired by some fundraising that their families were doing for breast cancer. So um, wishing for more mustaches the world over, uh, they got about 30 friends involved and they hoped that the movement would raise attention. It was, it was predominantly for prostate health and men's health as well. So 30 mustaches, $0 raised. Um, and now, now, however many years later, uh, 20 plus years later, we have over 20 countries that participate and they have raised unbelievable funds for local and international research and thousands of health products. So now, as it sort of morphed over the years and developed, the focus of Movember really is around three main areas, mental health and suicide prevention, prostate health, and testicular cancer. 
So kind of continuing this conversation on mental health, in your opinion, is men's mental health a totally different entity? Very fair question, and I'm going to give a, a great gray answer and say yes and no. Um, I, I mean, we, we definitely need to talk about it. So, so the no, the reason I would say no, it's not any different than anybody else's mental health is because mental health is mental health, and everybody has it. We're not talking about mental illness. We are talking about mental health. Um, very different things, so not a diagnosable condition, but an overall sense of well-being and our ability to thrive in life and in our, in our environments. And in that case, absolutely, men's mental health is no different than everybody else's because we've all got it. Um, you know, and so we, we need to, th that's one whole piece of it. Um, then, you know, I, I mean, I do think it's important to recognize that, you know, the universality of mental health just to avoid contributing to that very real stigma out there. Um, there are, there are, however, a lot of gender norms that are embedded in how we process or think about or we're expected to process to think about our emotions. And a lot of those habits, um, although very familiar, are not necessarily helpful. So just to kind of give an idea that the rate of male suicide is disturbingly high. Um, in Canada, three quarters of suicides are by men. Globally, it's approximately one male per minute dies from suicide every day. Those are very, very distressing facts, to say the least. So Movember is sort of looking at suicide and looking at mental health, but through a male lens, meaning looking at how gender intersects with mental health. Um, and as a result of that, they've got some really great initiatives, providing education, um, teaching men how to recognize signs of waning mental health, how to build stronger emotional connections, focusing on encouraging communication among boys and men, um, teaching them how to have these really hard conversations so that they're able to reach out for help when they need it. And, you know, a big focus of Movember, which is pivotal to, to any successful health initiative, is gearing up towards the, the intended audience. So making sure that your, your subject and your information meets the needs of the people that it's intended to, to get to. So Movember does this by focusing and uh, focusing on and supporting services that work for men. So about recognizing things that make us um, more similar as opposed to more different and encouraging those bonds. And that could be anything from starting up groups, you know, where they're supporting single dads, uh, formerly incarcerated men, First Nations male, people by nature just want to belong, you know. So it's, it's um, Movember has been fantastic in helping to foster that sense of belonging. Um, and as a result of that, hopefully, hopefully opening up some of those those avenues of communication and dialogue. Mm -hmm. I remember just just reading on some, like some of the kind of social justice forums that I hang out on that there's no denying the patriarchy greatly mm -hmm. harms women. However, mm -hmm. there is some harm to men, especially those those that feeling that you have to repress your emotions, close yourself off mm -hmm. and not build some of those social networks that maybe women ha have built up that perhaps men haven't really learned how to do as effectively. And I'm also curious about just your opinion on the link between like mental health and preventing boys and men from getting extreme views on things you know hmm. i mean that's a, it's a really interesting conversation to and you're you're right i mean obviously the sort of patriarchal norms that we all live in have have got some detrimental effects obviously to 
women and those who identify as. However, you're right. There's huge harm that can be done um, to to those who identify on you know as male um, on the other side of things. And I think, as you said, a really a really big piece of that can be that. And I, I mean, I'm that's kind of a blanket statement, but you know, I do think it's fair to say that. In general, um, men aren't encouraged in the same way women are to form close-knit bonds like that, to have Mm -hmm. friendships where conversations are a bit more open, whether that's about where you're at emotionally, what your stressors are, how you're coping with those stressors. Um, I want to think that we're moving towards something that's a bit more progressive at this point, but I also don't want to deny the fact that that has historically not at all been the, the case. And we know that when we isolate ourselves from other people, when we consider somebody else other and we consider you know, we're one thing and everybody else is the other thing. When we sort of develop a binary, and I'm not just speaking about a gender binary, I'm just talking about kind of keeping things really black and white, we run into a lot of trouble because the truth is a lot of life is gray. A lot of life is gray. And so if you if you have sort of a society that is set up in a way that doesn't encourage these relationships, these friendships, these conversations, these safe places to have these dialogues, then it's a pretty fair extension of that to say you're going to further encourage as you say, I, I don't want to say polarizing, but sort of extreme positions because you're not, you're, there's no, there's no place to float it. There's no place where you come back into your, you know, if I go back to hunter and gathering times where, you know, the women would sit around with the kids and they would cook and do their thing while the men went out and hunted and did their thing. There was, a, there's a bond and there's a, there's a, a community that happens with it within that. And so I think a, a big piece of what Movember has been trying to do is create that community, create it locally within their own chapters, but also create it globally and start these conversations that yes, are about health, but are about mental health. And also saying, listen, we might have all been sort of told, don't say these things, don't speak up, don't find your own community. But in fact, that's the missing link to all of our well-being. So um, my hope is that, and I think their hope, um, being they being the, the folks that have created Movember, but that, that's a huge part of what they're aiming for in this as well, is to have these dialogues. Even the fact that we're talking about this right now in this manner is a huge testament to the success of what they've done. Exactly. And that it's a year over year, day over day, conversation over conversation progress, right? It's not Mm -hmm. as many years and as much history as we do have um, not promoting all of this and these kind of conversations. That's the amount of time we need to take and understanding and empathy we need to take when approaching it and saying like, this is still fragile, very fragile for so many of us. Absolutely. And, you know, in a funny way, I think the whole growing of a mustache thing is uh, is a bit of a beacon, you know, because it's a way of saying without saying I'm into it. You know, I'm I'm aware I'm talking about these things. I'm aware of my health. This is me saying I I know what this is all about. So, you know, I've a good friend of mine um, has been working with the Movember campaign for decades. Well, a decade and a half at this point, pretty long time. Um, and he said that at the very beginning, you know, at the that he'd walk into a place and it would be, you know, him and one other guy with a handlebar mustache. And sometimes the guy with the handlebar mustache had nothing to do with Movember. Sometimes it was just a guy <laughs> with a mustache. But you got to open up the conversation, conversation. anyway. Yeah, yeah. it prompted a conversation yes. between two people to go, oh my gosh, that's so cool. Are you growing a mo? What are you talking about? I've been doing this since 1976. <laughs> oh, okay, well, I'm doing mine because of, and, and sometimes that starts <laughs> another dialogue. And I think that's a really cool thing about that's it precious. because it's, you know, it's very not, um, it's not antagonistic. You're not, you know, yelling out to the streets about it. You're not kind of putting yourself out there, but you are putting yourself out there. And there's, there's been some really great, um, trickle down effect because of that. Yeah. It's, it's, it's hard to reach men and and boys, I suppose. So 
something like this that's very non-threatening to the mm-hmm. male ego, dare I say, yeah. is uh, perhaps what's needed. Exactly. Well, and so we're talking about a, a few different things, Leslie. Let's continue with prostate health. Not something mm. we talk about every day, but we could probably bet on knowing at least one person affected by it, whatever that uh, may be. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I remember when I was in nursing school, one of my professors said, if you are male and you live long enough, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when you're going to get some kind of a diagnosis. Now, could that change over time with preventative care and better knowledge and all the rest and and maybe, you know, further advancements in, in health and, and preventative care overall? I hope so for everybody. Um, our testing is definitely getting very refined. And luckily, when it's caught early, this is a very slow growing, very manageable cancer. But like any cancer, early detection is is key. So, the you know it's the second most common cancer in men prostate cancer and the important part is a that you know i love because we talk about this all the time but a that you know your body b that you advocate for yourself and c that you take a proactive uh a proactive stance when it comes to your health so that means getting screened okay in ontario screening is done through a blood test that measures your psa which is a prostate specific antigen it's just a, a type of blood test we run Sometimes you're going to be screened earlier, depending on um, ancestry, family history. Um, you do get screened as of a certain age as a male. Um, automatically, that's part of your prev care in terms of what's covered, at least in Ontario. Mm-hmm. That being said, if you are experiencing anything off in that general area, when it comes to prostate health, there's some pretty specific ones. So going to the washroom frequently, especially overnight, that's a red flag. Okay, You're up and down more than two times in the night difficulty when you're urinating and that could be initiating maintaining ending um, feeling of urinary retention so in other words you you go to the bathroom but you don't actually feel like your bladder is all the way empty or even incontinence anything like that does not matter what your age is you need to go and see your family doctor now it doesn't necessarily that is not me telling you oh you got up to pee last night two times well obviously you have prostate cancer far from it but what i'm saying is that that is a red flag if you are if you are male, and it should be a red flag across the board. Changes in your health that were not the way you once were are need to be noted, and that's where your own advocacy comes in. Your ability to have these conversations, flag it to a physician and say, eh, this is different, this is definitely off, I didn't used to feel like this, could be something else entirely, but let's make sure that we're not missing um, missing something big and important. That advocacy is so important, especially since things kind of get swept under the rug here these days, maybe with your physician or a lot of people don't even have physicians. Another topic that's a little also uncomfortable for (laughs) men to discuss, uh, but we're going to do so now, is testicular cancer. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, again, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but you need to know your body. And you are, as I always say to, to patients, you know, you are the owner of this system that you have. You've known it way longer than any doctor, any nurse, any healthcare professional ever did. You know when something's off. So even if you go for an exam annually, um, you know, and your doctor says, well, geez, this is off. I can feel this little something here. If you're a person that's checking yourself regularly, then you can go, yeah, I know that's been there for 20 years. I always know that's there. It's been looked at. We, it's been monitored. It's been whatever, as opposed to oh, you found something. I don't know if it's new. How the heck would I know? You would know because you need to look and you need to check. So when it comes to men and owning all of their bits, um, you need to take control over all of this. So the best time, I'm going to get right into it. We're just going to cut to the business here. The best time to check, okay, because you do need to actually check your testicles. That is part of it is in a bath or warm shower. Okay, the heat will actually help things relax and distend, makes it a bit easier to feel if anything is abnormal. You're looking for lumps, 
you're looking for tenderness. Um, you know, it's, it's very normal that one testicle is larger than the other. So that's not necessarily a concern by any means. But if you are finding a change in any way, you need to report that to your physician or your, your most responsible um, healthcare provider in order that we can do some more tests and figure out what that change might mean. So if you didn't know before, Leslie, now we know uh, that Movember is just more than about a mustache. You got it. There's so much more to it. And and that's a great thing. And I so appreciate having these conversations. I know sometimes they're perhaps a little uncomfortable or not the thing you're used to talking to talking about on a Wednesday afternoon, but it's important that we get these conversations started. Um, you have no idea how much this can help people just listening to other people have these these chats. So do it in your private time, do it in your with your families, do it uh, do it if you're standing in the line and you see another handlebar mustache, you never know the impact you might have. Yeah. And you coming on here to talk about it, of course, is the impact you're making on uh, us and the audience and and having questions for you. Are there other ways that you see it in your profession as a registered nurse that the needle is moving forward from year to year with Movember or just in regular conversations with people? You know, I want to hope it's, you know, it's going to be hard to say, is this all just because of Movember? Is this because maybe we're all growing as people? Um, yeah. But I, I really do think that that I've, I have certainly noticed a trend towards people, um, men especially, being a bit more open about these conversations. I have a neighbor across the street who, you know, I obviously knows I'm a nurse. We're standing out there having a conversation about raking leaves. And wouldn't you know what it turns to him talking about his prostate and asking <laughs> what mm. I thought about something that he was reporting. Now, is that because of Movember? Is that just, I mean, I don't know, my husband's growing a mustache. Maybe they started a conversation about it. I don't know, but I have definitely noticed that people are more willing to have these chats, whether it's about their health, um, their physical health or their mental health. I, I do feel like there is a bit of a change going on, a bit more of an opening of doors. And I really hope that's a trend we're going to continue to see, because truthfully, it, even when I just look at the long-term implications of both physical and mental health, there's no question about it. Having these dialogues makes an enormous impact. Yeah, Absolutely. and you can tell Absolutely if you're right. scrolling on TikTok, you can tell that people are just much more open to talking about, to sharing information, whether it be mm-hmm. personal or just informational. It's There's a lot more of it actually going on, and that is hugely helpful in normalizing. Leslie, thank you so much. Thanks. Leslie Debo is a registered nurse, and she joins us on the second Wednesday of the month, usually. Uh, as is a, again, we're flipping a lot of our monthly contributions this month. So uh, stay tuned for that conversation with her, because it's always informative this month, Movember. Coming up after the break, we're going to roll an interview that you guys did at the Balance Community Info Fair featuring Andra Strusky of Strusky Prosthetic Join us in a bit. It's fun, insightful, and inclusive. Kelly and Ramya return in a minute. Catch the Pulse this Saturday and Sunday at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific for me uh, on AMI-audio. This week, Joita speaks to Paralympic cross-country skier and gold, silver, and bronze winner Natalie Wilkie. This is going to be the third of the three-part series profiling the 2023 inductees to the Canada Disability Hall of Fame. That's going to be The Pulse this Saturday and Sunday at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific on AMI-audio, available on your favorite podcast platform and YouTube as well. Right now, though, you're checking out Kelly and Ramya. 
with Grant and Ramya today. And uh, we just had a really great conversation with Leslie DePoe. Hope you were able to catch that about just some really critical issues surrounding physical and mental health for men this month. So definitely a lot to take away from that. Right now, though, we are going to go back to an interview uh, from the Balance Community Info Fair. And this is a conversation with Andra Strauski of Strauski Prosthetic Eyes. Let's roll. I'm Ramia Amuthan. I'm here with Andra Strioski, founder of Strioski Prosthetic Eyes. She's an ocularist, and I'm very curious about what that is. So can we start there? Sure, yeah. yeah. And a lot of people have heard about it because most people don't know someone who wears a prosthetic eye. Or if they do, they may not even notice because mm -hmm. what we do is we make um, a lens basically to cover a blind or a disfigured eye. Mm -hmm. um, or someone who's had their eye removed, we make a, a lens that that mimics the, the appearance of a natural eye. Right, mm -hmm. and how do you get into this kind of profession? That's a good question. Usually it's handed down through the generations, but I happened to get into it because I had a background in the fine arts, oh. and I was painting portraits and sort of looking for a more um, practical application of those skills, and I liked the intersection between medicine and art that um, that it provided. So I met someone who was doing it and and he took me on as an apprentice. Is it possible for you to walk us through one of the like typical processes? Yeah, for this? sure. Okay. So basically what happens is um, someone will come in and I will I will get a um, I will make a an impression tray for them. So mm -hmm. that's like a very thin um, acrylic lens. Um, that's thinner than the, the final eye will be. Okay. Then I will take an impression of their remaining eye or socket, whatever it is that they have in there, with some like uh, silicone material so that it, it's custom fit for their socket. Then I'll create a prototype to make sure it fits comfortably and matches the opening of their natural eye as much as possible. And then I paint it from life and put all the pieces together and we try it in and if it looks good, great. If not, we can adjust it as much as necessary. Try all over again. Yeah. And how often do people come back for, you know, like, I lost my eye, or <laughs> prosthetic, I guess, yeah. but, uh, okay. or I need a new one, or something yeah. has changed in their situation? Yeah, so usually uh, at a, after about five years, it's recommended that it's replaced mm -hmm. for most people, um, both because the tissues change as we age, or if we're younger as we grow. Um, and also the plastic um, arguably can um, harbor more bacteria as time goes on. So in the interest of the health of the socket, it's also a good idea to get replaced every five years. Are there many ocularists around Toronto or Canada? There are a few of us. I would say I think there's about 30 nationwide. Um, so it's pretty small. We all sort of know each other. Um, <laughs> we're not all related, but a lot of them are related <laughs> to each other. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a little industry and um, but you it's amazing how many people, you know, do require those mm. services, yeah. And that's what I was curious about, like the number of people who would need the service mm -hmm. if it's difficult or uh, in demand um, for the ocularist and for the, the services to kind of everybody connect with each other. Yeah. Yeah, yeah there's like there's enough work to go around. Um, doctors are getting good at at saving eyes, which is great. Um, 
one population that I tend to serve a lot because I opened my practice fairly recently is um, new immigrants that come mm. in um, who are often wearing something maybe that they've been wearing for many, many years, wasn't always custom made. Um, so I can really improve their their eye. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm assuming like it's a spectrum, right? People with genetic eye conditions mm -hmm. like myself or uh, people who've gone through accidents or other conditions that end up with the need. I have a friend who has a partial um, prosthetic, which is, it feels basically like a hard contact lens, mm -hmm. nothing deeper than that. Yeah. Um, but there were a lot of moments where we're like, don't forget to take your eye out before you get into the pool. Right. It's, it's, it's not a good idea. Yeah, you don't dive in without <laughs> your goggles at least. Right. Yeah. So, um, is there possibility of people having vision in the eye that they're putting the partial prosthetic in? Yeah, if, if there's some light perception, um, we can do a clear pupil on mm -hmm. it so they can still have a bit of that light perception. but. Um, if there's vision, a lot of the time the eye is still too sensitive to wear a hard lens over it. So you really have to see, you know, you'd have to c consult with the individual on that. It's interesting because like the uh, prosthetic is still painted over, right? So you're kind of using your vision, potentially having uh, something painted on the lens, mm -hmm. or is that not always the case? So yeah, so if it was, we would paint, we would leave this the pupil part clear, yes, yeah, clear. Okay. and then we would paint the iris to look more natural. Yeah. So you said your uh, Strioski prosthetic eyes is a new practice for you. How's that mm -hmm. going? It's going great. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I was working at a clinic in North York for most of my training, or for all of my training rather, and then um, I decided to start my own practice um, downtown at College in Spadina. And it's great. I'm meeting some really nice people, and it's a you form a, a good relationship because it does take quite a while to mm -hmm. produce the eye, so you really get to know your clients really well, and they come back every six months for cleaning. So it's really nice establishing that that rapport and trust with them. And you're here at the Balance Community Fair, which is great because you're having direct contact or c connection with uh, people from the blind low vision community. Mm -hmm. um, but aside from that, are there ways that you kind of outreach and promote or just get to know the community? Yeah, well, getting to know doctors is, is helpful because um, they can refer patients. Um, and also, um, just be having a good online presence is actually becoming more and more important because, mm -hmm. especially among younger people, they're interested in, you know, some of the funner sides of wearing a prosthetic eye. So there's a community on Instagram who likes to showcase the fun eyes that they get to wear and yeah. all that stuff. So I really I mean, like the moments too, like the low, the experiences of yeah, and the and apps. yeah, the the funny things, the emotional support, all that stuff. Yeah. Um, the internet for all and social media for all its you know bad things that it brings to us. Um, I feel like in supporting these niche communities, it can be really great. It is. And if people mm -hmm. want to find you, where do they go? Um, StrioskiProstheticEyes.ca okay, or SPIs.ca for short. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, it's nice talking to you. Thank you. You too. Andrea Strioski is the founder of Strioski Prosthetic Eyes. She's an ocularist, spending time with us here on Kelly and Ramia. Fantastic. Fantastic. So many great conversations today, Ramya. And sounds like that uh, Balance Info Fair was really a highlight. You guys got so much great stuff from that.
Yeah, I'd love to follow up that conversation with Andra um, with uh, testimonials from people who've had their, I, I keep wanting to say like eyes tattooed, but you know, the <laughs> prosthetics that they had requested with interesting and intricate designs. She said uh, she'd referenced a dragon that she'd made for a client once, some kind of a dragon scenario, dragon-esque for an eye prosthetic, a half prosthetic. And I'm thinking there's got to be so much more out there. Just follow that hashtag and find no more. Um, Grant, we've got a couple more minutes to kill on this side of the balance interview. So let's talk about the Grammy nominations. We'll flip the switch completely because they've been announced. SZA, killing it. The Kill Bill singer leads the Grammy Award nominations with nine nods. The song Kill Bill up for both record and song of the year and her album SOS up for album of the year. Others getting nods in the big three song, record, and album of the year categories include Taylor Swift, John Batiste, Miley Cyrus, and Olivia Rodrigo. The Grammys will be given out February 4th. Jason Athens and ABC News, Hollywood. Okay, we have to put ourselves on the spot here and just outright ask each other, like, do you (laughs) recognize all the names? Do you recognize any of the music? Do you listen to current top 40 hits on radio? 100 percent oh sorry go ahead (laughs) 100 percent yes 100 percent yes i think there's there's this stereotype that people look at me i don't know and they're like oh you must be into like classical music no i listen to (laughs) i listen to pop top 40 sizza is like my sort of guilty pleasure all all of those songs are right off the charts the stations the the playlists that i listen to how about you (laughs) okay All right, don't stutter too much or else we'll go back to believing that you don't listen to this music. No, it's true. Um, I enjoy uh, all of these artists. I'm not going to talk any trash about Taylor Swift because Dave <laughs> Brown might be listening and he's not pleased <laughs> with anyone who has anything negative to say about Taylor Swift lately. Oh, no. But, yeah, you know, but because that's because he's a new fan. So cute. Um, the the thing is, though, I, SZA, I do have a bone to pick with her because the one concert that I went to with for Top Dog Entertainment, TDE, the whole crew was here. It was such a vibe, but SZA canceled absolutely last minute. Like, I mean, she didn't even announce that she wasn't going to be on this leg of the tour until... I don't know, later in the night where I'm like, where the hell is SZA? It's been hours. Um, She wasn't able to make it because she had really damaged her throat. So understandable, but I still feel very resentful that I didn't get to see her. I love her music, though, and um, I love all of this, but I have not been keeping in touch with the latest from any of these artists. Um, So, yeah, but shout out to Olivia, Olivia Rodrigo. Right. Oh, absolutely. That's understandable. Nothing worse than something getting canceled like that that you're looking forward to. Uh, Accessibility advocates are speaking out about unreliable assistance in air travel, pointing to regulatory gaps and really terrible enforcement that can leave travelers with disabilities injured, stranded, or demeaned. Let's take a listen. Community leaders describe damaged mobility aids, seemingly untrained staff, and a painfully long check-in and boarding process. The criticism comes after Air Canada pledged to roll out new measures that aim to improve the experience for hundreds of thousands of travellers living with a disability. Heather Walkis, chairwoman of the Council of Canadians with Disabilities, says the problems go beyond a single airline, extending to what she calls gaping holes in the law related to consultation and assistance 
consistent protocols, despite a regulatory overhaul in 2020. Emily Jovesky, The Canadian Press. It's so shameful, especially just the lack of redress that you can get. Like, I feel like if it's almost any other issue, you know, a cancelled flight, what, uh, whatever it is, bump you from a flight, you can be entitled to huge amounts of co uh, compensation. But with something that affects your dignity or affects your willingness to fly, whatever it is, something that happens when you have a disability, it's kind of like, well, gee, we apologize. And I, this is this is not cool. This has really made me so much more anxious, Ramya, about flying. Oh, God. You know, the horror stories that we hear, Grant, and I I sometimes think, like, you know, I've been victimized or I've really felt this um, discrimination around disability. But then I hear about the horror stories that people have where their wheelchairs have broken into unsalvageable pieces or, you know, they're... they're um, motor like uh, vehicles or their accommodations their extensions of themselves ways for them to be uh, to move or to be moved have literally been lost and i wonder mm -hmm. how do you like what kind of accountability can you even take when these things happen how do you actually make it up to these people and their experiences because forget the the physical aspect of it forget the compensation how about the trauma right like of oh my moving gosh, yes. forward and being able to trust that you can travel again and be supported again i i think it's ridiculous how much lack of care there is absolutely unless you're someone who's a real go-getter doesn't worry about anything it is hard to put yourself out there when that yeah. happens Really, really crappy stuff. We're going to take a break. Got to think about that one for a second. Coming up, we're going to wrap up the show, plus find out what's coming up on the next edition of Now with Dave Brown. Join us soon. We'll be back with more of Kelly and Ramya after this short break. So many great conversations today, Ramya. I hope if anyone missed anything, they check out our podcast. Check out, check us out on repeat uh, because uh, we just had some fantastic guests on the show today. And yes. coming up, mm -hmm, and coming up uh, tomorrow at nine a.m. Eastern, two more hours of fun with now with Dave Brown, Ramya. What's coming up on the show? It's been a fun week. Alex Smythe is taking over Dave Brown, who's on birthday vacation, and he's doing a great job hosting. Um, some of the things that are coming up on tomorrow, the Thursday show is, well, tough times for anyone who has a mortgage. We already know. But there's an increasing number of home, uh, new home homeowners who are arranging to have 30-plus years mortgages because of the high cost of living. And Aaron Broverman will describe the pros and cons of having such long amortization periods. Uh, really quite interesting of a shift. Also, Black Friday is just around the corner. So Mark Aflalo will fill us in on some of the tech items consumers will be looking for. He joined us on Monday to talk about top tech, uh, what do you call it, holiday finds and gifts that you can gift to the techie in your life. And there was a great kind of... Um, lowest to highest price range if you want to check that out on the podcast but back to now with Dave brown also entertainment critic critic michael mcneely is going to be reviewing a classic anime film grave of the fireflies which is celebrating its 35th anniversary 
Nice. I'm hoping to switch out my cell phone plan this Black Friday, so please don't disappoint. (laughs) All right. Our closing moment today. The headline is Dr. Pepper releases limited edition pop with actual pepper. So this is what Kelly's left for us. The brand's newest... (laughs) Yeah, I'm a pop fan, and I'm not sure I would go for that. The brand's... (laughs) newest carbonated concoction quote unquote dr pepper hot take puts a fiery spin on popular pop by adding spicy peppers the limited edition launched on uh last wednesday it is not available in stores and will only be around while supplies last not available in stores i guess you're oh, sorry last for a while I guess you have to i think that's it is now available in stores i think I think one of these in a lifetime is enough. What do you think? Uh, yeah, no, I'm not going to try this. <laughs> and if I was, it's probably just going to be a shot of Dr. Pepper. We'd have to really share that can around. And the closest thing that I've had to anything remotely comparable to this is like a spicy margarita or a, a spicy rum drink. And even though I was like, eh, I don't know what it's just gimmicky. Right? <laughs> like, it's just fun. that's the best way to describe it i actually like spicy food which is surprising because i'm a picky eater but i don't know spicy drink i don't know if i could do that i think without alcohol in it (laughs) as long as it's carbonated that's all i need carbon carbonation and sugar don't need my spice yeah i guess you could use it as a chaser or as an ingredient to develop something a bit better but just like a spicy carbonated drink i don't know you know what this sounds like it sounds like a two-parter when you eat something spicy and then accidentally wash it down with something carbonated and it feels worse have this has that ever happened to you yeah 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 maybe it feels like we're gonna do that yes it feels like an unfinished research project that someone (laughs) just released it it's been a heck of a lot of fun hosting with you again coming up on the show tomorrow, Fern Lullum stops by to talk about the new Netflix miniseries, All the Light We Cannot See. Heard a lot about this, which she uh, uh, actually provided audio description for. Yes, I'm looking forward to that as well. I uh, haven't heard it yet, but also audiobook time to try to get that movie or sorry, that uh, book in. Also, we're talking about making the perfect cookie with Chef Mary Mammoliti of Kitchen Confession. She is so trusted with these cookies. One time we were at her house and a cookie turned into a muffin and we called it a mookie. That was also really fun, Grant. (laughs) I just hope we're not putting peppers in the cookies, right? That's not happening. I hope not. I'm sure it's an adventure still. Yes, exactly. Join us uh, tomorrow for a lot more fun. Hopefully a little bit of a more normal show. We'll have Kelly and Ramya uh, back with you. Pinky promise. But again, it's been so much fun. Thanks for watching and listening. Ciao for now. I think when people are interested in things like trains, it fascinates me. This guy I knew took me to this bridge one day. Off of a main road, 
dirt road, up over this little bridge and down the other side, turned his car around and stopped on the top of the bridge. Got out, stood at the railing. This is dark. All right? And he said, I want to show you something. See how quiet it is? And it was. Now, again, keep in mind, I don't know what I'm standing on a bridge over what. And I said, well, it's pretty quiet except for that train. He said, oh, there's one coming. So then I got the picture. We were standing on a bridge over train tracks, I think. As I stood there, and I could see enough to see the light of the train coming towards me, it felt like I wasn't standing on a bridge over the tracks. I was on the tracks. So I'm trying to figure what he's doing. I reach back. I touch the car behind me. Okay. I move my feet. I don't feel any tracks. There's a railing in front of me. Is this thing going to lift in some? What's going on? I see the light and it's coming towards me. And he's all excited. And I'm thinking, are you excited for our death or something? What's going on here? And the train got closer. And I realized at one point, no, we are on a bridge and it's going to go under us. Just then they let rip on the horn. I can tell you I almost jumped straight up to heaven right there. It was so shocking as the train went underneath the bridge. The vents from the train, the engines, blew up at us. It was exhilarating. One of the greatest moments when it came to that kind of, I guess, jumping out of an airplane, those thrill moments, without actually having to do something like that, it was a fun thing to experience. Scary for a second. Wow. Others I know would try that out and tell me about it. They knew the spot and they'd say the same thing. Their first experience, even knowing they were on a bridge, these are fully sighted people, even doing it in the daytime. But that first initial when the train went under the bridge, blew the heat up from the vents right into your face. What a feeling. I always thought trains were interesting, but I can tell you, now I enjoy them immensely, even just hearing it in the night going by. And I guess I understand a lot more about people who like trains beyond models. Hi, I'm Red Sale, inviting you to download the latest episode of My Life in Books where internationally acclaimed authors discuss their lives, their work, and three books that have resonated with them. That's My Life in Books, available wherever you get your AMI podcasts.